Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, which continues our Exploring the Operatic Canon series, Dr. Tiffany Kuo discusses the identity and accessibility of the traditional canon from production to reception and the ways in which we can discover new works and address equity in the performing arts today. My name is Tiffany Kuo, and I am a musicologist. My specialty um, is in 20th century and 21st century operas. And so just sort of by default, they're not within the canon per se, right? So if we think about opera, we really think in terms of like Monteverdi to maybe, I don't know, Shostakovich, Stravinsky. And for those of us who are very adventurous, we might listen to some John Adams, right? Some Philip Glass, and that's like really exciting for us. Um, and so my interest falls sort of a bit outside of that. It's not to say that I don't love a beautiful Richard Strauss. Like, I will go listen to Salome any day. <laughs> um, but my uh, my original sort of dissertation work was on Luciano Berio, who um, didn't, who, he wrote operas, but they're very, uh, they're avant-garde operas. Um, and then I sort of fell into this loophole of falling in love with really his his first wife, Kathy Barbarian, who's a beautiful singer. And she sung many of his works. Um, and then through that, I fell in love with many other vocal works as well of the sort of mid like 20th century through today. So um, then I got to know Georgi Ligeti, not so much through Kathy Bavarian, but just sort of the circle of friends of Berio. And then um, Mauricio Cago, who I know doesn't get produced in the US and that would be like amazing. <laughs> um, and I do love the John Adams and the Philip Glass. Um, and I really do love contemporary music in the sense that I like to listen to all different types of music. And I don't just mean like classical contemporary music. I mean like all types. Um, I currently teach uh, American folk music um, and sort of it's, it's not the most popular class. So I'm thinking of changing the title to American roots music. And maybe that's more sort of um, accessible for people because people think of folk music as like, old, like your grandma's music. Um, but really it's like, it's the roots of American culture. Um, and if you think about sort of how classical music um, has come about, a lot of it incorporates folk music, right? Folk traditions and, and like the roots of different cultures. And so I, um, I really enjoyed learning about folk music. I also teach rock. Um, and there obviously there are rock operas. Um, I'm proposed a course for hip hop and there's also hip hop operas. <laughs> um, the one of the more famous ones may be Beyonce in um, Carmen. It's you can watch it on YouTube. I recommend it. It's kind of fun actually. <laughs> She's a great Carmen, as you can imagine. Um, yeah. So my interest in opera really lies within just sort of anything that comes my way. The way I introduce my students to opera is I actually just look at that word and I say, "Do you know what this word means?" In Italian, it's plural for the word opus. Right. So like opera, so opus. So opus just means work. So why was it called opera? Right. Why was it called a plural form of opus? It has to come from somewhere. And the idea that it was a collection of songs. It was a collection of 
you know, of, of entertainment, of stage works. And it, it was a collection of sort of all these different stage ideas that were going on at the time of like the 16th and 17th century of the Commedia d'Arte, of the Intermedie. Um, I mean, all of those were then put together. And once again, like not to like overstress this, but it was expensive because only the Archduke, only the Queen, only the Prince, only the Empress could afford to put it on. And they put it on once. It was to showcase their wealth. It was to showcase their power. And a lot of times the patrons would literally dance in the performance. If you go back to early Baroque opera, it does stem from um, from Italy, right? So we do attribute to the birth of opera to Italy, and it makes sense because the word opera is Italian. Um, and it makes sense that the Medici court and the various Gonzaga family and the various Morsini families produced and, and literally like showcased their power through these musical performances that were part of like a really long celebration of either carnival, wedding, whatever it may be. And so like the, the seeds of opera are Italian. And so I think that... Um, one one focuses on the, the the identity of opera as Italian, and that makes sense to me in the 17th century. But then it grew, right? So aristocrats were interested because they wanted to produce these huge, elaborate productions, whether it be sort of a slightly different version of like the Italian opera or not. What you end up having is actually the musicians traveled a lot. So like even though um, certain musicians were you know um, employed by a particular court, they still traveled around, and so they could travel to different parts of Europe and perform. And then the question there is, I mean, I, you know, and you should definitely get a early opera Baroque specialist is, is whether they performed it in Italian or in the, in the vernacular. Because I was always under the impression that by the classical period, they were performing in the vernacular. Once again, if opera is so expensive to produce, it's to show the privilege of the society that we're in. So it's only the privileged who can see it at that point, because you had to be invited as a guest. And why do we have the canon? Because that privilege is then passed down and we can recreate it. And so who can recreate it? Well, you got it once again, half the capital to recreate it. Right. So we went from aristocratic patronage to public, right? But is it really public? It's who what which public has the capital to go to an opera, to produce an opera, to be a part of opera, right? And so now we're looking at the 19th century and, you know, opera houses are large. Once again, aristocrats built these opera houses and then it was impresarios. Who are impresarios? Well, they're like the wealthiest of the wealthiest. I mean, today we would call them the 1% who built these opera houses, right? And then they ran the show and they were for profit. So think of it this way, right? They needed to make a profit in these opera houses. And when they didn't, this is the funniest story I like to tell my students, which is in all the history books, is that, you know, you could start having, um, <laughs> they had gambling in the lobby, right? Um, so that they can make more profit, because <laughs> then sometimes you might not make enough profit from your productions. Um, so once again, it's like it's the privileged class. Right. And that's really been handed down in that sense through the centuries. And of course, then you have the late 19th century, early 20th century, the philanthropic wealth that created all the music theaters. Right. So if you think about Carnegie, who Carnegie was. 
right? Um, if you think about then later on, you have even then, you know, by the 50s and 60s, you've got Lincoln Center, you have LA Music Center, you have Kennedy Centers, all built in the same period in the 60s into the early 70s. And that was a great um, subsidize in terms of um, all the philanthropic efforts, right? Rockefeller, Ford Foundation, um, and all the large, large foundations. We really have to look at, and when I say privilege, this also goes to um, not just the attendees, not just the who gets to produce it and who's funding it, but also who gets to teach it. Because once again, I do think the curriculum goes hand in hand with the repertoire that's being produced on stage. And if you look at the data, the academic music professors who are musicologists and music theorists, right? So these are the people teaching music. It is 90% white. If you look at the Society of Music Theorists and you look at the Society of Musicologists, they are 90% white. And so, you know, and, and we really need to question that at this point, because if, if we don't expand, right, because that's not population and that's not music per se, right? And this is music professors. It's not like, um, and most music departments are called music departments, but 90% of what they teach are Western classical music. And so we really have to question that privilege of like, who gets to teach? On the one hand, I know I have the privilege to go on the internet and serve whatever I want. We must not forget that there is still an equity gap in society, that there is not a lot of access for a lot of people, right? And if that's not possible, then, you know, we can't just keep moving forward, right? We have to like make sure that the society does not become more and more unequal because that is what we are experiencing. As, much, as great as like, it's free as it is to Google something, it means that you already have a device and a connection to Google something. The, the one profession I haven't talked about are the critics. I do think music critics are incredibly important. And I know for a very long time, the New York Times, the LA Times, and I, I don't read beyond that, I'm sorry. I do read the New Yorker, the New Review of Books. Um, they're no longer all white, but for a very long time, they were all white. And so we don't have a diversity of critics. And I do think that matters. And if you look at their backgrounds, they might also be educated very similarly. Are we training the same people to look at the same thing? And yes, they might show us more, but at what point are we not including everyone? I think we need to relax the definition of opera, right? Maybe we go back to the original definition I talked about, which is it's a collection of works. It doesn't have to be, you know, three hours long. It doesn't have to require a chorus, a male chorus and a female chorus and a 50 piece band, you know, and all of that. And, and, and every animal known to mankind to go on stage. Um, you know, maybe we can just like really pare it down and think, okay, it, it can be staged. It should be staged because we like drama. There should be some sort of narrative. You know, it could be disjunct if it wants to be right. Does it need more than one singer? I don't know, but maybe we expand the definition of opera, we can include a lot more quote unquote non-canonical composers, right? So it's like, because it is, I mean, and I've spoken with um, composers. Composers are burdened in, in my opinion. It's like, they have to think so big. It's like, if I don't, you know, write an opera by the time I'm X years old, maybe I'm not gonna quote unquote make it. And I think, you know, it's, it, it's that self-imposed pressure, but it's also a societal pressure. And maybe we relax it, right? To like, it doesn't mean, you don't need to write for 50 voices. You know, you don't need to write for a hundred piece orchestra and it doesn't need to premiere at the Met. 
you can write for something really small, something really interesting, like Chris Rome's um, Invisible Cities that he wrote for the um, U- Union Station, right? So I, I want to propose that we look even outside of quote-unquote classical music. Because I teach rock and I teach, um, I teach folk and I'm going to teach hip-hop, a lot of what goes on musically is staged, going right? Mm-hmm. Because well, let's put it this way. Uh, pop singers are making a lot of money touring in stadiums. The amount of, of like technical, like extravaganza, <laughs> right? And in the Baroque period, they say like maravilla, you know, and I know it's pop music, but who is to say that that's not our contemporary version of, you know, of opera, right? And, and with um, sort of the, the wonderful um, diversity of population and cultures that comes through America and stay in America and, um, and that are evolving in America and developing in America, um, you know, I, it would be beautiful to think that an opera company, like a traditional opera company, can produce like something, you know, that's like a Chinese opera, per se, because access to opera is not necessarily that easy for everyone. And then, you know, we can talk about sort of like what that implies, right? Because opera is a very expensive production. It's a very expensive enterprise. Um, And therefore, um, there, you know, it might be that um, producers and opera companies don't want to take the risk. And so if if there's no risk involved, then um, productions tend to be the same because productions are hard to come by, right? You have to think everything in terms of the set and the costume. And I mean, down to the stage hand, to the, you know, to the performers and all the singers. And by then you've put so much money into one production. And if you don't produce it again, you know, it's a risk. And where happens to it, right? You've invested so much. And what is the reward from it? Um, I know today in a more international setting, productions are shipped across sea which is really awesome. Um, and I know that LA has um, shared productions with other cities and um, within the country as well as I think abroad. Um, so that you know can sort of decolonize the canon as it were in opera or like um, loosen the boundaries of this sort of canonic opera so that we can be more inclusive of different cultures. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. LA Opera is committed to recognizing and supporting the growing diversity of expression, artists, and experimentation with the operatic art form, as embodied by our off-grand productions, as well as the contemporary and experimental work at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. We still have a lot to look forward to in 2022, and we hope you will join us for our upcoming productions, as well as an exciting new season this fall that will be announced in early February.